Welcome to brand new episode of Big J and Little J Show. This is episode 12. I am Jordan Mann, and with me as always is Connor O'Neill. Connor, we just wrapped up the Wake Forest and Vanderbilt preview, and now we are looking ahead to Duke at Northwestern. It is Duke is undefeated. Everything's great for me. Uh, I'm still living the dream until it can all come crashing down on me by 3 p.m. on Saturday. So you're still printing the shirts. You're still uh, – what, what did you tell me? You, it, wasn't 12, it, it wasn't 12 and 0. You just – you settle for ACC champions? Yep. I said okay. I, I put on Twitter I have an open room available for anybody in Charlotte for the ACC championship game. But uh, in all seriousness, I mean, Duke, that was the most impressive defensive outing. Like, regardless of how bad Temple is, Duke played some bad – Duke played a bad A and T last year, and they scored 17 points. And oh yeah, that was Kansas, a game at halftime too. Yep, and Kansas was in year one of a rebuild, and they kept it close for three and a half quarters, almost three quarters at least. And to see Duke take care of an opponent easily is something I haven't seen in a while. I won't say it was before Cockliffe because Cockliffe did that in the prime of Duke years. So. But yeah, thirty nothing shutout. The first shutout Duke's had since '89 against UNC at UNC. Uh, Spurrier is the reason why people shut off scoreboards now so quickly because of his Duke team. Uh, but yeah, Riley Leonard over 300 yards passing his first start, and the defense pitched a shutout and gave up less than 200 yards of total offense. So Northwestern's obviously coming off of. Uh, their exciting 31 to 28 win against Nebraska and Dublin, but uh, Nebraska Scott Frost, man, you just you hire a special teams coach finally, and he was the one not the not the special team coach Scott Frost was the one that decided to do an onside kick up 11 with nine minutes to go in the third quarter. Why even have a special teams coach if you're just going to be like, nah, we're going to do this right here, and that completely <laughs> changed the game because in a minute and 15 seconds, Northwestern scored to make it a one-score game, and then Nebraska didn't score again, and he – Scott Frost then called out his offensive play calling like Ripple didn't win the AC championship with Pittsburgh and had Kenny Pickett killing everybody last year. He's like, ah, oh, got to do better offensive scheme, offensively. It's like he threw for 465 yards and was up 11 for you. So – this is a Duke podcast, but let's just – I like ripping in Scott Frost right there. So – You're speaking like somebody who had a monetary interest in the game. <laughs> yeah, I did. I had – I had uh, I think I had Nebraska minus 11, and everything was looking good. And then that onside kick just shit hit the fan. And, and, and like I told you, you, you did not pay attention to me in the July podcast when we went over the most important games. And I told you – Northwestern is not bad two years in a row under Pat Fitzgerald. You you are correct. And he's – to clarify, he, I mean, he is obviously not bad two years in a row at all. And it's definitely in a Big Ten play. Like, Big Ten, he goes first, worst, first, worst, and now they're technically in first this year. And uh, one of my notes that we'll go into as we do the preview of this is it's funny that no matter if they're first or worst, whatever the outcome is of the Duke game does not determine their season. <laughs> so uh, we'll go right into it. Um, 
I'll let you go first because you just had a Q&As that you came out with with Northwestern's publisher on Rivals. Uh, talk about that to the listeners. Yeah, um, I was grateful to exchange Q&As with Louis. Um, not sure how he, exactly the pronunciation, but Vacture, I think, is the is the last name. Um, he's the publisher, managing editor of the Rivals site covering Wake Forest, Wildcat Report. Um a little background. I I usually have not been the most open to doing those Q and A's. I have always felt like it's creating more work for somebody in the profession and it's just work I could do myself. Like you, you can research the other team that you're the team you cover is playing easily and write an article about them. But I do think there's value when you ask questions that aren't just like hey, what is this team good at on offense? What do they do well defensively? Pat Fitzgerald's in his 17th year. How safe is his job? Like, once you get past those questions and really dig into the meat of things, you can get some some good quality content there. So, like, I asked a question, um, you know, hopefully, if, if you're like me, you pay attention to some NFL draft updates and, and kind of who's projected to be top, 10 top 15 top 20 picks going into the season northwestern has a guy projected to be uh at least in one one projection i think it was todd mcshay's a top 10 pick with uh peter skaronsky their left tackle he's a third year guy that is a preseason all-america guy um he was i think second team all big 10 as a true freshman in 2020 when northwestern won the big 10 what is it, the big 10 west yeah um and he was a second team all Big Ten guy last year. And he's kind of he, he's he's on that trajectory where he's a third year offensive lineman. It looks like this is his last year because he's been that good. So I asked Louie, like, is, is it just about him or do they have the rest of the pieces on the offensive line to be good? And Louie went into depth about that, um, telling me about, you know, they're they combined for 214 rushing yards and two touchdowns against Nebraska. Um, they have the, their right tackle is a sixth year guy with 26 career starts. He's experienced. They have inside guys that struggled last year, but they've taken the next step. And, and they were obviously when you run for over 200 yards, your whole offensive line has probably played well. They played really well against Nebraska. So there's stuff like that in there, you know, the Mark Ripple, the Mark Whipple connection. He was a name that that really got a lot of attention in the ACC last year for his effect on Kenny Pickett and Pitt. So Northwestern opening against Mark Whipple in his new role at Nebraska. That's something I wanted to know, like, okay, Nebraska throwing for 355 yards in the opener. Was that the Mark Whipple effect or was that targeting a, a perceived weakness in Northwestern's defense? And he, laid it out pretty clear like that that was mark whipple um northwestern's defense their secondary they feel really good about they have experienced guys back there they did lose a corner uh early in the game against against nebraska to an injury and they're not sure if he's going to be back um northwestern is, is one of the teams in college football that is not doing a depth chart so we don't know if he's back for this one or not if they did a depth chart, we probably still wouldn't know. They'd probably list him and and have a good chance that he doesn't suit up. If you know, 
if he was hurt two weeks ago, but that's beside the point. It's it's the Harbaugh effect in the Big Ten, uh, which is what one of the guys with Stadium wrote about a couple weeks ago that was really interesting. But I digress. Um, yeah, it's it's got really interesting stuff. Uh, it's up on Devils Illustrated as of Wednesday morning. Uh, hopefully you'll check it out. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good write-up, and it's very detail-oriented to little peek behind the curtain to Duke's opponent Saturday. Uh, to touch back on, like, the stats, it's kind of crazy. I know it's one game for both teams, but offensively, Duke scored 30, Northwestern scored 31. Duke had 500 yards of offense. They had 528. Duke had 328 yards passing. They had 314. So, like, it's pretty, like, pretty spot on offensively. I know, again, Duke played Temple. They played uh, Nebraska. And the one hiccup, like, I know the Whipple effect, it's easy to, like, say it was him. But, like, Casey Thompson came in from Texas. And, you know, he had question marks. And he was able to hit. Even the throws that he missed, there was a lot of broke not, – not a lot. There was a few times where the receiver was open, especially in the second half, but he was just off rhythm, and he made the throws that made him unsuccessful at Texas where it was a step. I remember one who uh, – Jordan – Jordan Lewis. It's not Jordan Lewis. I do this every time. Lewis, Jeremiah Lewis. Jeremiah Lewis. Thank you. Jeremiah Lewis transferred Northwestern and there was one where he was kind of beat on a corner route but it was overthrown and so the deep shots could possibly be there for Duke I know the run game Northwestern swallowed up the run game against Nebraska I mean they averaged three and a half yards of carry and only got 110 rushing yards which is why they're so effective passing but that's how they also lost the game is because couldn't establish the run. Second half, it was easy to play defense when you know they're not going to run the ball on you. Uh, the X factor for uh, for Northwestern that Duke really needs to uh, focus on is Evan Hull. I mean, the run game for Northwestern, 22 for 119 and two touchdowns. The offensive line stout with arguably the best tackle in college football. It's coach talk about you have to win the game the trenches the battle of the trenches but against northwestern you really have to you have to beat a big 10 team in the trenches and maybe yeah. not even beat them but like 55 45 northwestern has the edge not 75 25 and that's, that's where I, I go to i one of the most encouraging things you know you can talk about the defensive effort overall from duke last week one of the most encouraging things within that was how good uh, Dwayne Carter and Jamie on Franklin looked in the middle. They they were unblockable at times. Um, when you're when you get pressure up the middle, uh, it makes your pass rush so much better. When you when it's a run play and you're able to blow up the middle of the line and disrupt the handoff or make the back make a cut two or three yards behind the line of scrimmage. You're at such an advantage. You're giving your linebackers and safeties who are filling holes such a such a benefit uh, when you're making running backs make decisions and make moves early like that. I think that's a huge thing in this game. Like, watch if you're a Duke fan, you need to be watching number 55 and number 90 in the middle. Uh, Aeneas Peebles is number 92, and Michael Larby will be in there a little bit. Uh, Watch their backups because, you know, 
you're not you're not playing defensive tackles 90% of snaps in games. So that's a huge key to this is Duke being able to get pressure from the middle, get uh get some run disruption from the middle. Those guys look great against Temple. Now it's it's going to be a little tougher of a task to break Northwestern's interior line. Yeah, for sure. And uh, one of the articles you wrote too were, was talking about uh, Mausi and Shaka. They led the team with six and five tackles, which is obviously not a lot, but that also shows that Duke was flying around the ball that everybody was tackling. Because normally yeah. last year they had like 12 tackles each, 14 tackles, and to continue that article, there was zero missed tackles between them two, and they led the team last year in the stat of missed tackles. And that's that also second could and third. be second don't and third. That, sorry, don't put that evil on them because uh, sorry, second and had them had them beat. Yeah, second and third, and that could also again, that's possibly not even football related. That could just be like we're we're gassed. We're the season is awful. We're just not focused. We want this game to end. So it could be a different mindset. I'll tell you what was the the other, you know, really impressive part of Duke's shutout. Every every part of a shutout looks impressive, but what bodes really well, Duke played 59 snaps of defensive football in that game. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they didn't get a first Temple didn't get a first down to the second quarter. And yeah. it shouldn't have even been a first down. He was short and the ref gave him a yard and they had like two or three more first downs in the possession. And so who knows when they really would have gotten the first down, but I digress. But like one of the, one of the things I wrote about this off season was how many snaps Shaka Hayward played last year of their percentage. I think it was something like Duke had around 900 snaps of defense. And he, I think it might've played like 815 or 834 defensive snaps. It was, it was an unseemly percentage of snaps for a defensive player to play. Shaka Hayward played 37 out of 59 defensive snaps for Duke in the opener. Like if you can, if you can limit his snaps to that ratio throughout the whole season, he's going to be so much better. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's, it's going to be so much more. It's, it's going to be easier to keep him healthy. He's going to be fresher. He's going to be faster. If, if you can get by with playing Cam Dillon, uh, played 17 snaps. Trey Freeman played eight snaps there toward the end of the game. If you can get other linebackers in there, uh, Rocky Shelton played eight snaps. If you can get those guys in there and keep Shaka's snaps low, keep Dorian Mausi. Mausi, I think, took like 700-some snaps last year too. Keep their snaps low. He will be, he'll be so much better off. Yep. And what we talked about last episode in the wake preview – uh, coordinators don't want to show off what they're running for the next opponent, especially not week one, especially when Duke plays a team like Temple. There's no reason to get flashy on offense or defense. And on the defensive side of the ball, I think the one person that still nobody knows about that we've talked so highly about is Darius Joyner because Temple had no time to throw the ball downfield to make him have an impact on this game. And, he's a wild card for me to where I think you will see him be what you've raved about and I've raved about since he stepped foot on campus because Northwestern is going to challenge Duke. They're going to try and throw vertical because Helensky had success against Nebraska. And stereotypically, 
off of Duke's defense last year, you could have done, you could do that. And so there's going to be risk. And then there's going to be runs that Hole's going to have, and you're going to see Joyner close up that gap as quicker than you've seen a Duke safety close up since cash. And uh, I think he is somebody that he had a quiet game, which is great because like you said, the defense only played 59 snaps. He couldn't do anything. I mean, yeah, the back end of the, the back end was not involved. Chandler Rivers had a very solid game as a true freshman. He had a lot of healthy reps, a couple, and Adonis Sanders is a good receiver. Like he was catching some tough balls and Rivers had his hands in. So that's great game rep for him in a game that was from the start. You're just like, okay, Duke is better than Temple. It was almost like Duke versus Kansas, Sean Wilson's freshman year, where he had like 13 carries for 200 and some yards. You're like, okay, this team is just better. On the offense side of the ball, I mean, Duke... I have one more. Wait, I have one. Oh more yeah, go ahead. I, yeah, yeah, I finally pulled up these. Go ahead. Eleven out of twelve games last year, he played more than sixty snaps. The one he didn't, he played forty-nine snaps against Louisville, and that game was over pretty quickly. Yeah. So, and I mean, for him to play thirty-seven snaps, like that is less than half of snaps that he played against Pitt and Miami. And those were games in November last year that they're having him play over 80 snaps. That's insane. That that's that's kind of neglect. I mean, yeah. for for lack of a better term, that is pretty pretty awful to have a guy running around that much. Um, so again, him playing 37 snaps is one of the many many positives that came out of that uh, first win of the of the Elko era. And one thing, too, I want to touch up on is, like, David Feely, like, the strength and conditioning that he did in the offseason and the preseason has done wonders because Shaka Hayward, I mean, I tweeted, I said he was like a grown – he is a grown-ass man. Like, he had a pass breakup or something, and it looked like my dad bullying me at six years old playing one-on-one basketball. He's like, all right, I'll give you, like, two points, but then we're playing to 11, and I start crying when he's up 5-2 because he's just stiff-arming me. And that's what it looked like. It was just a man amongst boys. And well, look, when when you're going against Anthony Noel at practice when you're in high school, you're gonna you're gonna take advantage of when you can bully your kids a little bit. That's a fair point. That's a fair <laughs> point. But there, I was very impressed with the size that Duke showed. Like just strength and quickness. I mean, even uh, what's his name, um, Jones, who is the ACC Network color commentator Roddy. guy, Roddy, Roddy Jones commented and complimented uh, Jalen Calhoun and the receiving core just looking shifty. He said, Duke has not looked this shifty in a while. And Calhoun caught one pass and then juked like he was going middle to go back sideline and juke the Temple DB. And he said, that's something that we haven't seen since Crowder basically at Duke. And he's correct. I mean, it just goes to show like the work Duke's put in for the last eight months, they're taking the right steps. Like every, everything was positive. And what I was going to say about the offense was, I mean, they scored uh, 24 points in the first half. It was 24 nothing. Yeah, I think that, like, that's the one thing you would have liked to see them correct the issue a little more in the second half. Correct. But, but at the same time, it's like, you know, the, the, over, the overriding feeling is yeah. your defense is going to pitch a shutout. Who cares if you wind up with 30 points or 48 points? And one thing that was refreshing for Duke for Duke fans, I say, as a whole, is seeing like the coaches like really jumping on them on the sidelines. Like 
Elko was even when he got the Gatorade pumped for him, he was not happy. He wasn't happy at halftime. He wasn't happy when he got the Gatorade poured on him. And then Kevin Johns ripped Riley. It was uh, a third down in the second half, and he threw it to Pankle like a deep ball in the end zone that he couldn't come up with on the left side. And he had a receiver come open on the bottom of the screen. And, I mean, before Riley could even get on the sidelines, Johns is meeting him on the field, like ripping him. And Duke has the game in control, but it's been – it's probably been since Cut's first staff at Duke that I've seen him absolutely like a Duke player get coached hard and like ripped on the sideline. And uh, that was refreshing to see. And it just shows that Duke's not going to settle. Duke's up, Duke won 30, won a football game against an FBS opponent by 30 points. And you came away from that game. It's like that should have been a 60 point win. And the coaches are not going to sleep until they are perfect. A sloppy, ugly 30 nothing win is the best-case scenario for Duke week one because there's stakes still in a blowout win, and they're not going to let any Duke player just skate by. I'm glad you pointed out that Elko was pissed when he got the Gatorade bath. Or, I oh, I think it's confirmed if it was Gatorade or water. It looked clear. Yeah, it could but be water, but he was definitely pissed. <laughs> a couple – it's funny because coming from where I am, like I – I'm friends uh, with a couple Wake players that were coached by Elko when he was at Wake, and so I'm I'm looking at their tweets when I get back up in the press box after after all the post game interviews and everything like that, and they're saying, "Oh, Elko pissed!" Like they're yeah. they're quote tweeting the the video of it, and they're like, "Oh, I know that look. He's pissed. Like he is he is hot. He is not happy." And I never would have known that if I if I hadn't seen them pointing it out of like. Yeah, we've we've seen that look. He's got a smile because he knows he has to smile for the cameras. But like, that is not a happy Mike Elko right now. It it wasn't. It wasn't like a happy grin. Like it was like, like he. It's almost like he realized the moment first career win like that was going to happen. But he also was like still in coach mode. Like, damn, we should have beat these mother effers by more than this. And then also didn't want to like show up the other coach. He's like, I'm sorry. I think he's, I think he said like I'm sorry as he was going to shake his hand. And yeah, I mean, I just. It's refreshing to see the coaching. And uh, when I was talking about, like, the defense didn't want to give up their game plan at one week in the season, like, Duke's offense was sloppy in the second half. And it was sloppy, too, in the first half with the false starts. But, again, that's going to happen because Johns has them on the ball ready to go. And yeah. there was just a couple false start penalties because they're going so fast. And that's, again, it's an it's irritating for coaches and then for some fans. But, like, it's week one. You're – working the Kings out against a real opponent. It's almost like that game was almost like a preseason, like the final preseason game before like a real season. Like I wrote, if if your biggest like hangups are procedural penalties on second down and mm-hmm. missed field goals, you can live with those things for for a first time coach, um, for where they took this program over, like this yeah. you, those are those are fixable solutions. Those are good problems to have uh, compared to compared to what they could be. Yeah, and Ham and Charlie Ham, I'll, we'll touch on that too. I mean, that's that's tough. You go three, was it three for six? And the, three for six. You yeah, know, one he, of them, one of them was a fifty-one or fifty-two yarders. It had the distance. He just hooked it, and I wonder if it just kind of messed with his momentum. But college kickers are not going to be perfect, so. He, Duke just needs him for one kick, like 
a game, like one crucial kick a game. As long as he just maintains confidence, he'll be fine. Yeah, and Elko told us Monday because it, it, it did come up. Um, Elko told us he has all the confidence in the world in Charlie, uh, I think was his direct quote, and told us that, you know, in statting fall camp uh, situational kicking, Ham was 22 of 23 in, you know, the, the competitive situations. They don't stat every kick throughout the entire practice because, you know, the it's kind of a – I don't know how well kept of a secret it is, but, like, in a college football practice, the specialists are needed for maybe four or five out of, say, 15 periods. And those other 10 periods, they're off doing God knows what. Like, sometimes they're over there talking about reality TV. Um because you, you can't overkick, like you can you can overwork yourself and get a dead leg. So it's not like it's not a bad thing that sometimes there's downtime for kickers and holders and that kind of thing. But I, I get sidetracked um, in competitive situations of fall camp. He was 22 of 23. Mm-hmm. So obviously that that track record, one 50 percent showing is not going to undo three, three strong weeks of being an accurate kicker is what I'm trying to get at there. Yeah, I I, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, let's touch up on uh, Jordan Morris. Cat's out of the bag. Yeah, he's still listed third string on the depth chart. I mean, that was just – he he caught that pass up the sideline, and then it was like, okay, he's going to get tackled for 17-yard gain. Oh, my God, he broke a tackle. Oh, my God, he's gone. And then just that one – He's like six inches away from his first ever reception being a touchdown. But, I mean, he got his first touchdown later in the game. He He's exciting. Yeah, it's one of those it's one of those stories that I hate that it, it's kind of fallen away from me. Um, hopefully he can get back to it. But we talked to him last week before the opener, and I, I kind of asked because I, I want to know, like, you've handled this before. Like, Duke has had – guys come in at quarterback who have switched positions. Um, I handled it when in covering Wake. They had Kendall Hinton come in and spend three years being a quarterback and then move to slot receiver and, and become a thousand-yard receiver. The, the way the cliche goes is that all these quarterbacks that switch to receiver, they have this advantage because they're, they're spent so much time in the film room looking at it in the lens of a quarterback and the quarterback should know every part of, of an offense and every play and every route that's run, every every route tree that you want to try to branch out of. So now that Jordan Moore has moved to receiver, I wanted to know if like if, if the cliche rings true. And he gave he gave some great detail and, and some great answer about, yeah, you know, he running routes as a receiver, he's able to kind of see the coverages up close where as quarterback, you know, obviously you're you're looking at coverages from 20, 30, and 40 yards away. Uh, now he's able to to read off of defensive backs that are right in front of him. And he's really, I mean, this is this is three, like Elko said it right after the game, this is three weeks of playing receiver for that kid. Uh, imagine what he can do after three more weeks or no, a couple months. Um, and not that not that you would have been skeptical of this, but it's just it's good to have the early evidence of, hey, this is why Duke's coaches made this move uh, when the quarterback battle started to look it could go a certain way. Um, you do not want an athlete like that. You do not want somebody that electric 
to be on the sidelines and the only way they're going to go into the game is if it's a if it's a specific package for him at the goal line like it was last year when everybody in the stadium knew that it was going to be a run to him um you want that guy involved in your game plan more than just a a one trick pony so to speak so yeah he he's going to be conti- he's going to continue to be involved uh he's going to be you know that that's the old uh no matter how long they list him in third on the depth chart he's he's going to get the ball i think everybody knows it at this point so with him being the x factor that we will be talking about going in northwestern game cuz Again, downfield, legit threat, and have the ball in his hands. We'll go right into the Northwestern game. I know we've already tiptoed around it so far. And it is an even year to go, like you said. So, odd year, they're last. Even year, they're first. Like, that's just how it's been the last four years. They were Ricky Bobby program. Yeah. And what I was talking about earlier, I said I'd get into it. So, I have it right here. In 2017, even though it was an odd year, Northwestern was 10 and 3 overall and lost 41 to 17 to Duke at Duke. And then in 2018 when they went to the big championship, they were 9 and 5 overall. Basically they're 9 and 3 overall and they lost the big championship and then I think they lost the bowl game, I think. Or they're eight anyways, they're 9 and 5 overall, lost 21 to 7 to Duke at Northwestern. And that was a game that really like Duke won, but then Duke lost like that season because that's when Daniel Jones broke his collarbone to where he was out to the biggest home game in Cuckoo's era, basically. Duke was ranked. Virginia Tech came in. Duke was favored against VT, threw like five or six interceptions, lost 31-14 on national television. And Mark Gilbert basically had a career-ending injury for Duke. Like I know he's in the league now, but he never really played for Duke ever again after – breaking his hip at Northwestern. And I remember like reading articles that he was projected like late first, early second round pick, like DB, one of the best DBs in the country, broke his hip at Northwestern. And really his career never was the same. He played in 2020 for a couple games and then decided to not play anymore in the COVID year to focus on the draft. So that's just my point and counter for when Duke plays Northwestern, even a Northwestern good year, historically, Duke has beaten them. Any other fun facts about this game? We already went over the yard and said, oh, the Vegas line. Duke is plus 10, which is crazy to me. Like, I think it should be about six and a, I think it should be six and a half, seven. And 10 just seems like a lot with the history of the programs. Over-under is 58. And Northwestern's, I've already bet this, Northwestern's total team over-under is 34.5 points. Pat Fitzgerald has never scored more than 28 points in any of his games against Duke ever. And Duke's never given up in the career of Duke playing Northwestern since 1985. Three games they've reached over 35 points or 35 points or more. So I don't understand the 34.5. I think it's a market overreaction to them playing Nebraska and Duke being historically bad last year in the ACC. But I think it's going to be an 11 o'clock kickoff. That field's so choppy and so ugly, and it's the worst to play on. I see it being another, like, 24 to, like, 17, like, grind-out game, and maybe 24-20. I don't know which way yet, but I think Duke covers. I think it's going to be 
a close game and it's going to be an ugly game. But obviously, Northwestern being a double-digit favorite, Duke's going to have to bring their A game. Yeah, I think it's be tight. Um, I, I I said in the in the Q and A with the Northwestern guy for their site. I I think Northwestern comes out of this. Um, I think my score prediction was maybe twenty-seven twenty. Um, Duke covers moral victory. It 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 feels like uh it so i'll i'll figure out some way to write this uh hopefully this week last week feels like a a good showing of duke had some talent left over from coach cut i mean there there's there are some players that were left they the new staff has molded that talent in a way that the former staff probably if if they were going to, they hadn't done it yet, mm-hmm. right? Like there there's some talent left in the building. Uh, there are some things to work with. I think this game will wind up showing how far Duke still has to go. Like this is a program that has a 17th year coach. There's a strong foundation. We can talk about the roller coaster of the the even year odd year stuff, but it's a solid foundation that Pat Fitzgerald has there. I think it's just a it's it's. Look, it's a it's a first year rebuilding project going up against a solid Big Ten program, and I think that's going to mean a little bit more of an advantage for Northwestern. Do you think uh, Adam Cushing's been in any of the defensive rooms to talk to the defensive line about how Northwestern plays offensive line since he was at Northwestern for fifteen years? I didn't real. I I think I, I think I'd forgotten that it was that long that he was there. I, um, Kevin Johns was at Northwestern too. Uh, there's there's three there's three Duke coaches that are that spent time at Northwestern at one point. I can't remember who the third one is. Um, I forgot about John. That's a nice little trivia. Yeah, uh, I think it was his first job out of out of college. He was like a GA um, and and got his start there. And then I think he had a second stint once he had been become more established in his career. So yeah, yeah there's there's some familiarity. Um, and Elko talked about when he was at Bowling Green with Coach Clawson, uh, going to camps at Northwestern and and going to clinics and kind of, you know, that's something that I think kind of gets lost in in translation uh, among the common college football fan. But a lot of uh, the Power Five programs will open themselves up to the lower level schools or the the G five schools that aren't going to be on their schedule in the next couple of years. And they'll say, "Hey, come, come to see our practices. Come to see how we run things, and pick up some some tips, some pointers along the way." And Mike Elko was doing that uh, when he was at Bowling Green. Yeah, and then uh, to just round it out, coordinator wise, Rob Smith was defense coordinator at Rutgers last year, and so he already game planned against a Northwestern style offense. And I think actually Northwestern beat him, but it was like twenty-one seven because Rutgers offense was just non-existent. So. Still, I mean, that was huge for Duke playing against Temple. I mean, again, he was at Rutgers with Mathis and Temple last year. And so, like, they, that stuff really adds up. I know we talk about it like almost like hyperbole fun facts, but really behind the scenes, like, they are putting their heads together and like, okay, what's the best game plan here? We all have experience. And Pat's been there for 50 years, everything before, ever since he was born. So, yeah, that's one of the, that's one of the benefits of what Elko did with his staff. It's not, it's, you know, you weren't going to have a, a transplanted staff because 
Elko is a defensive coordinator coming from Texas A&M. He's not going to pull every Texas A&M coach with him, but he really, he really picked and chose uh, from a lot of different places and picked, picked and chose guys that have a lot of different schools in their resumes already. So there, there's going to be a lot of those storylines throughout the year, no matter who Duke is playing really. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to it. My prediction, Duke 27, Northwestern 24. Charlie Ham redeems himself and has a crucial game-winning kick. So that wraps up episode 12 for us. You guys listening, thank you for listening. Subscribe to the podcast. Leave us five stars as a review, and we'll see you next time.